Robert Lord was one of the first New Zealand playwrights to make it internationally. His plays include Well Hung, Bert and Maisie, and Joyful and Triumphant. He was also one of the group which set up Play Market 50 years ago to encourage professional production of New Zealand plays, licensed productions, represents writers. Nanita Reese was one of the Play Market founders as well, a friend and colleague of Robert Lord, and now chair of the Robert Lord Writers Cottage Trust. She's co-editor of a new book, uh, his diaries between 1974, when he made his first trip to the United States, and 1991 shortly before his death, at the age of 46 from AIDS-related illness. Nonita Rees joins me now. Kia ora. Kia ora. Um, this is a very finely produced book. His diaries. First question, obviously, did he know they were going to be published? Well, he put all the diaries into the Hocken Library himself. All right. So, so he made them available for public perusal. Yeah, I mean, if you put things into those public archives, you are making them available in the long term. There's a question about when they become available. But when you put them in there, they have to be... Well, they don't spend public money looking after papers that no one will ever see. All right. Tell me about your friendship with Robert. When did you first meet him? Ooh, 1970. And he was... Downstage at that point. Well, no, he was sort of, yeah, he was hanging around downstage. He was teaching at Petoni Central, paying off his his bond, because he'd done a teaching training, teacher training qualification, which he had to pay off by doing at least a year's teaching. So he was doing that, and my husband and I just arrived in New Zealand, and my husband became the first theatre lecturer in um, New Zealand in University of Victoria, and Robert was decided to join that course so and that was a they had a lot of teachers who did it then and Robert and they started at four o'clock in the afternoon so he was in that first intake of 30 students and I was going to edit Act magazine Bruce Mason handed that on to me and Phil my husband said oh you should meet Robert he'd be fantastic on this so um, we met then um, co-editing Act magazine and he was stage managing it downstage and generally hanging around. And was he fantastic? Yeah, it was great. Great. And how old would he have been at that point? Uh, he was 20 something. About 22 something right. like that. Yeah. And did you know that he would be a playwright at that point? No, nobody knew he would be a playwright. He had no idea. Well, yeah, we think he was well, Phil always said he was he was writing stuff. Didn't talk about it. In the theatre, people didn't know he was writing um, plays at that time. He was just helping put stuff on. Um, Phil said he would ask him how his writing was getting on and he would just say, oh, it's fine. Um, and so it wasn't until he'd finished writing It Isn't Cricket and shown it to Sonny Amy, that, and most of us didn't, didn't know about this, this whole play at this point. And what was that play like? Oh, it was terrific. Very clever um, it was a, a bit like a play for voices, and Sonny only did a, a rehearsed reading at that point on a Sunday night. That's right. Yeah, so, but it was very clever, and people would just, it was quite different to anything else that we'd seen at that point. In what way? Um, well, I think it was the sophistication of it. Um, the um, 
the characters constantly surprising you. They took went down one track and then you suddenly saw what they'd been exploring in one scene would suddenly flip and you'd see what the other character was thinking. So a lot, lot of clever surprises in the whole thing. Do his plays, have they aged well? In other words, you know, if you put them on today, would we think, gosh, this is, you know, this is so 1970s? Well, I think that's a really interesting question because it's been a, it's been interesting for me. I've gone back and looked at some of these which I hadn't looked at for you know maybe twenty, thirty years, and some of them I think do stand up. In fact, funnily enough, New Zealand on Screen have just put up um, some of the Burton Maisie, which was done for television, right? And and they've just put up the TVNZ version of Joyful and Triumphant. Ah, uh, good to know. Yeah, and I was. Quite pleasantly, I was. I thought they actually stood up pretty well. I think Joyful and Triumphant is probably his best known, isn't it? Yeah, it certainly is. Yeah, but he was dead before it was staged. Or... Yeah, yeah. It was in. It was just going into rehearsal, and so he never saw it professionally. He never performed. saw it. No, no, he didn't. Well, he knew the rehearsals, and he. I was with him in the hospital before he died, and I. I heard him on the phone say to people, "I'll be up for rehearsals. I'll be up there." Yeah but he didn't see it. No, six weeks after. That's very sad. Yeah. Joyful and Triumphant is massively entertaining. Um, yeah. And quite complicated to stage, I imagine. Oh, I don't... I, th- I think it's... Time kind of, lapse. It, time lapse, but it's it's a nice little puzzle for, for people who work in the theatre. It's quite fun working out how you will do that ageing, how much mm. of it you'll do. It's It's got a lot of design features and what you'll change and what you won't change. So was Robert a happy person? Yeah, yeah he was. That's been... Because the diaries generally give an impression of somebody who's frustrated, um, sometimes a bit lonely, mm. sometimes a bit sad. Mm. Even in New York, where he was able to be himself more in terms of sexuality, he still had these kind of, you know, dark nights of the soul. Yeah. Is that just arty? <laughs> no, I think that's... Um, I've had a few of people who knew him well who've just read the diaries now, and they're a bit distressed at how um, depressed he was, mm. how upset he was about mm. things, and they, they've been quite blindsided by seeing that side of him because that wasn't what you saw of Robert. He was always a... How you, f- how you do things, what are you going to do next, how you can solve this problem... Right. Does it make you think that he was covering up a lot? Yeah, it does, actually. Yeah. Were you upset when you first read the diaries? I was upset at the... um, Yeah, I was upset at at, at the um, loneliness that he must have felt, that distress that he didn't talk about, carrying that AIDS burden around with him. When did he first come out as gay? Well, in New Zealand, that's a that's really really interesting uh. because I've talked to quite a number of his close friends who knew perfectly well he was gay, and I suppose I knew he was gay, but I actually didn't think about it. Right, um, I knew a lot of his friends, and in fact, even his mother I talked to after he died, and it was. They, they, people knew. It's just it wasn't. They didn't use the words, and in the theatre, it wasn't something unless you were involved in the relationship or 
it wasn't something that we really thought about a great deal. In retrospect, it's a bit dopey, really. Do you think? Well, the fact Isn't acceptance? uh, uh, Yeah, it's just there was obviously... There was distress in his life at all points, and but the compartmentalisation is what's really become clear to me as I've thought about it and as I've talked to other friends. He describes himself as having cultural schizophrenia in the diaries because he had to hide his sexuality in New Zealand um, and he didn't in America. Yeah. And I suppose that would have been really strange. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He seems to be quite a different person. I mean, that the second diary is in a, quite a different sort of voice to some of the other diaries when he's in New Zealand. He is a different person yeah. in the second diary in particular. But that said, you know, talking to people like Judy Lessing and an actress who's named a few times, Joyce Reeling, close, close friends of him, spent a lot of time with him. The people didn't all mix together. So it wasn't so much that he hid the sort of intense gay life that he lived, but it was separated off. Yeah. That's become clear to me. Yeah. And people who visited... I didn't ever visit him in New York, but I know a lot of people who did. When I was... Vanessa and I were trying to check who these people were. And Vanessa Manhire, yeah, who's one of your co-editors. Yeah, yes. yeah, she's the big detective on the job. Yeah. Um, Working at, and I thought, oh well, so and so will know who these people are. But no, that's that what he called the family, those six or eight men that did everything together. The other people didn't have much to do with them. It's interesting, and yet he was a very gregarious person. But I realise a lot of people were compartmentalised. Mm. Yeah. Do you think he was putting on an act a lot of the time? Well, I've. It's hard to. It's hard to say it was an act. Um, because because he was a naturally generous, cheerful person. Mm. That's what's a bit of a puzzle to me, that it was so hard, that he had such a hard time when he was on his own. But then, hence the diaries, you know, there must have been the place where he did talk to himself. And, and I mean, realistically, diaries are where we do pour the darker parts of our souls. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't mean that we are disproportionately dark, necessarily. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Yeah, and and with a couple of the people who have just quite recently come to me saying they, they are distressed, that they wish they'd helped more, had done more, um, encouraged him to talk more. Mm. Um, or even reassured him more. Yeah. That, you know, he was, he was doing well, he was a success, I had nothing yeah. to... Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So th- that he intentionally didn't talk about some things to some people, mm. quite intentionally. When was he diagnosed? Well, it's a bit unclear. I mean, Chris Brickle and I have talked quite a bit about that. Because um, I was trying to figure it out and it just s- it's, seems it's to... over. He's yeah. obviously seen doctors in New York in the very late 80s, hasn't he? 87, 88. Because mm. he's getting some medications. Um, he's talking. He's talking to doctors there. Yeah, yeah. But he also, I think, he must have just shut it out of his mind at some points as uh, well. Yeah. But I mean, it was a terrible time. He describes he was in New York yeah. when the epidemic kicked yeah. off in the eighties. Yeah. Um, and he describes it. His friends were dying. Yeah. 
Yeah, and when you look at, you know, the notes in it, you look at the people whose names are all mentioned, and, you know, the notes we've got saying the people who are still alive and the people who died, You at least half of the people mentioned in the New York things, you see that they died in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. Do you think that he found love? He talks about two people that he that he loved um, sexually and spiritually. He uses the word spiritually. That that's that's Russell, whom I knew. Russell Craig. Russell Craig. Yeah, spoke to him quite recently, and um, Jay Funk, whom we took a long time to track down who Jay was, and Jay died of AIDS shortly after Robert. Yeah, right. those two people. He feels he he was he had. Was in love with, yeah, and was had great regrets about the relationships. But he was loved by many, many people. That's one of the things that I think I tried to reassure some of the friends who are a bit distressed that um, it's quite clear that people loved him mm. quite deeply. People of both sexes. I mean, one of his old flatmates in Clifton Terrace said to me, Oh, I loved Robert. I reminded him about some of the stories. I loved Robert. Wouldn't want to go to bed with him, mind, but God, I loved him. Well, so Sam Neill says Robert was one of my favourite people, wonderful man. Yeah. He flattered with him at one yeah. point, I well, think. Well, he was in and out of the flat, I think, Sam. Right. Was. Yeah. Um, the uh, Titan Street house yeah. in Dunedin, which he managed to buy... He wouldn't have paid very much for it, I imagine, because as he describes it... 36,000. How many? 36,000. Back in... 1987. All right. Mm. And he describes it as a rather large dog kennel. (laughs) I'm quite fond of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's been inhabited by artists for the last 20 years or so, right? Yeah, yeah. We've had over 100 writers living. It's never been empty since we opened it as a residency. And he had that in mind. Yes. You weren't wildly enthusiastic about that idea <laughs> because? Well, he was. I, when I visited him, the last time I saw him, he, he told me about the will he'd made and all the arrangements he'd made sometime before that. And he said, oh, and I've, I've, set, I've set this residency up, and I was working at the Arts Council at the time, and said, oh, for God's sake, Robert, these are a nightmare to run. You know, writers don't always want to go and live in these drafty old places and, um, you know... Just, you know, do you really have to do this? And he said, this will work. And here we are, 20-odd years later, 30 years later, running it, and it does work. Has it been a nightmare? No. It's great. It's great. We've got a group of about six or eight people who help. It's all run by volunteers. And there's always somebody who wants to go and live there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have waiting lists and... We advertise each year, and it's never been empty. There you are. It's good, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So you were right, Robert. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think he left his mother a certain Mm. amount, but she... Did he leave her the house, and she gave it over quickly because she wanted to see it running? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, how that worked, um, after he died, I got to know his mother quite well. And she was worrying about that. He had left, you're right, he, he left it so that his mother would get income from the cottage right. in her lifetime. She wasn't hard up. She didn't need the money. And she used to worry about all the money that was being dealt with by lawyers and accountants looking after it all. And she she just said, I, I don't know whether this is going to work or not. 
And so we kind of puzzled it out together whether we'd have a go at doing it. And so she just gave up her interest in both his royalties and um, and in the house. I think he just wanted to make sure she was looked after, and it was a gesture as much yeah, yeah. as something that he that she practically needed. And so, any royalties that now accrue from his place, they go into the house. Yes, they've gone since BB gave those over right. a long time ago. Uh, um, how many of his plays are in circulation at the moment? Do you know? Um, well, he wrote about twenty odd, and I think I talked to Murray Lynch. There's probably about. 12 or something like that, that we'd be happy about licensing. You mean, why would you not be happy about licensing some? Well, some of the plays look a bit creaky. So right. you'd have a, I mean, you wouldn't, uh, well, Murray at Playmarket would would talk to the people, you know, and if, if it was some that looked really pretty creaky, you'd probably say, are you sure about this? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. But you wouldn't, so you can't, can you update plays? Well, we in have. the absence, have you? Yeah, 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 yeah. The um, the well hung that was done at Auckland Theatre Company about Colin McCall commissioned a yep. new version of it, with um, Stephen Sinclair wrote new endings for it, and I thought long and hard about that. But in fact, in that for that particular play, Robert had written like about five, six versions of it himself. Uh. So um, yeah. It, uh, I mean, Stephen looked at all the various versions, the American, the Canadian, and the two quite distinct versions here, and wove them together and um, put a slightly updated version. Mm. Yeah. Um, you mentioned um, Vanessa Manhau's detective work. She had to track down all the people, yeah. presumably who were mentioned in the diaries, not necessarily with their surnames, not necessarily knowing who or where they were. How did that work? Well, it was interesting. Vanessa and I kind of split that up. I knew quite a lot of the New Zealand people. But Vanessa had done her PhD at Rutgers in, in New York, so mm -hmm. she kind of was familiar with the New York scene, and she's a great Googler too. So um, she got very determined to find all sorts of people and um, would Instagram them and make contact. So we tracked down quite a few of the New Yorkers that way. Were they happy to be tracked down? Yeah, the Americans were. Um, we've only come come across one or two people who didn't want to be mentioned. I mean, if there was quite personal stuff in there, um, we really wanted to talk to people if they were happy about it being in there. Um, but generally speaking, people were absolutely delighted to hear about Robert. And yeah, it's been quite an interesting thing. But Vanessa's um, detective work was fantastic. And it was enormous fun because... She's in Dunedin and I'm here, so the three of us were constantly sharing what we'd tracked down and what we'd found. And she found the photo the American photo some of those photographs come from quite well known um, American photographers. I mean, he mixed with a lot of famous people when he was in New York. There would have been well known photographers hanging around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Bobby Miller, who's got there, some beautiful photographs of some really well known people there. Um, is thrilled at how beautifully um, Fiona Muffet at um, Otago University Press has put all that together. And Chris Brickle, I also want to pay um, compliments to because he's very fussy about how his books get put together and did a wonderful job on finding the, the photos in there and how they were laid out. It is. It's a very handsome production. It's beautiful, isn't it? He would never 
have thrived if he hadn't gone to New York? Would he? <sighs> I don't know. I mean, he. a lot of us wanted him to come back for quite a long time. Um, and he, you know, he was he 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 ended up being quite stranded between the two. I mean, it was a period not at home in either, not at home in either. That's quite clear. Mm. That is quite clear. But we kind of we could have done with him actually over some of that period in the late seventies and early eighties in terms when, of playwriting. In terms of playwriting, yeah. I mean, he worked damn sight harder than a lot of playwrights work. The sheer number of drafts and his ear of listening to what worked and what didn't work. I think playwriting here would have been quite different had he stayed here. Did he work hard in New York? I get the impression there was a lot of partying going on and a lot of sort of thinking about working, but not actually getting down to it. There's periods, I think you track that down, there's periods where he, he and he says so, that he, that he just does absolutely bugger all. Right. But there's periods where it's really intense, and I think that's a pattern. But um, it's interesting when you look at the sheer number of things that he wrote, the number of drafts that he went through, compared to other writers, and you know, I've seen a lot of them over the years, I don't think I've ever come across anybody who's done as many drafts and changes as he did. <laughs> And in terms of your own editing and drafting, how much did you take out? About half. Oh, right. I mean, a lot of the stuff that's taken out is the quite technical um, redrafting of the plays, Mm -hmm. thinking of what works, what doesn't work, what's going to work for this particular production, for this particular audience, American audiences, Canadian audiences. Quite, quite technical, which you'd have to know the plays to be remotely interested in it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he'd be happy with this book, would he? I think so. Huh? I think so. Yeah. Nice to talk to you. Nonita Reese, who is a co-editor of Robert Lord Diaries, which has just been published. It's the diaries that he kept uh, in between the years 1974 and 1991, shortly before his death.